This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how the return of native plants to the urban landscape of Hermosillo is helping residents meet the challenge of climate change. Meet John Rhodes, a native Tucsonan who worked to get his father and grandfather inducted into the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for their achievements as a rodeo roping team. Tony Paniagua talks with Marie Buck, the new CEO of the Western National Parks Association, about the importance of supporting and nurturing outdoor experiences. And a very short story by R. Lee Sheehan that asks the question, is it the woman who wears the suit or the suit that wears the woman? Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A growing number of people in the Sonoran capital, Hermosillo, are starting to consider how the city and its residents can deal with the impact of climate change. In the already hot, dry Sonoran desert, some advocate that native plants could be an important part of the solution. From Hermosillo, reporting for Fronteras, KJZZ's Kendall Blust brings us a story about urban reforestation. Sitlali Sierra uses a shovel to gouge a shallow hole in the hard, dry ground of the Yanez Cemetery near the center of the sprawling Sonoran capital, Hermosillo. It's a sticky July afternoon, gray storm clouds rolling in with the promise of much-needed rain. Sierra, her husband, and their two daughters are part of a group of volunteers scattered along the pathway, planting small, spindly palo verdes they hope will grow into a lush row of shady trees laden with vibrant yellow flowers each spring. Sierra says it's thrilling for her kids to see the trees they planted in previous years thriving in the quiet cemetery. They're working with the nonprofit Caminantes del Desierto to turn it into an urban forest with more than 2,000 native plants. She says reforesting key sites like this one with palo verdes, mesquites, and ironwoods can improve their city, making it more livable and resilient in the face of climate change, growing heat, and diminishing water supplies. Environmentalist Sergio Mueller is co-founder of Caminantes del Desierto, or Desert Walkers. He says Sonora is facing a water crisis. Communities across the state routinely find their taps running dry during the summer months, some struggle to access water year-round. And for the past two years, the capital has only been saved from widespread water shortages by last-minute monsoon rains. Native plants, he says, can help, providing shade and beauty without soaking up excessive amounts of Hermosillo's scarce water. They're also more resilient than non-native plants. Mueller says just 20 years ago, Hermosillo was a green city, but many of the trees that filled parks and lined streets have died, unable to withstand the heat, drought, and storms that many native plants are made for. So his group and others are planting native trees in the cemetery, in parks and medians, usually working during the monsoons when summer rains can help the plants flourish. Eventually, he says, each path through the cemetery will be planted with different trees so that the rose will bloom yellow, purple, and lilac in the spring. They've planted more than 300 
150 trees, as well as a pollinator garden full of flowering brittle bush, fairy dusters, chuparosas, and other endemic species, plants that Mueller says are becoming increasingly popular in Hermosillo. He says many Sonorans praise Tucson for its native landscaping, proof that desert species can be beautiful and more sustainable than what he calls the tutti-frutti mix in Hermosillo. The problem now is supplying enough native plants. That, he says, is where the government comes in. Amparo Fontonot leads me inside the Hermosillo City Nursery, where workers are raking up leaves and watering plants. Okay, vamos a reforestar la ciudad, pero la ciudad necesita plantas. Head of the city's Parks and Gardens Department, she says when this administration took office in September, it quickly became clear that growing native plants should be a priority for the all-but-abandoned nursery. Mueller says it's one of just a handful of city-run nurseries in Mexico dedicated entirely to cultivating native plants like mesquites, palo verdes, ironwoods, desert willows, acacias. Necesitamos más árboles de sombra en la ciudad. Fontonot says her top priority are shade trees that can make the city less brutal for people waiting at bus stops or walking down streets. Later, they'll add plants that provide more ground cover, biodiversity and color, like orange and red-flowered Mexican bird of paradise, agaves and ocatillos. She says people are eager to help reforest the city with hundreds lining up to adopt desert trees at donation events. The need is increasingly evident. Gracias a Dios, Hermosillo. Está lleno ahorita de grupos ambientalistas. And Hermosillo, she says, is lucky to have citizen-led environmental groups leading the way on sustainability. That's crucial, she says, because the city has limited resources. At the cemetery, Sierra's daughters pull a wagon full of large blue laundry detergent jugs being reused as watering cans. The volunteers douse the newly planted trees as they wrap up for the day. Like Fontanot, Mueller says his hopes for a greener Hermosillo rest mainly on groups like this one, because waiting for government intervention will take more time than they have with the looming threats of climate change. And it's one way Hermosillo residents can take back their city and make it a place they want to live. I'm Kendall Blust in Hermosillo. Recently on this show, we featured a conversation with Marana native Sherry Servi, a four-time world barrel racing rodeo champion. Servi has been honored with two streets in Marana named in her honor. Arizona Daily Star Street Smarts columnist David Layton came to the studio to explain how, and he brought with him John Rhodes. He's a Tucsonan whose own family has a close connection to rodeo and ranching. During the pandemic, Rhodes worked on behalf of his late father and grandfather to get them inducted in the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. Next, John Rhodes will share some family history with David Layton and myself. The background is my mother and father uh, were divorced. My grandfather was a, uh, a Tewksbury from the Pleasant Valley War, and uh, they, they, they came down to San Pedro Valley and started ranching down there and after he was married he he rode his first rodeo in Tucson in 1919 the first rodeo before the La Fiesta de los Vaqueros started and he came over and and roped in that and he helped start the Tucson rodeo and so consequently I was very young my first rodeo I went to when I was a month old 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, every weekend, my mother and father were divorced. I lived in Tucson with my grandparents here to go to school, and I lived up at the ranch on the other side of the river from Mammoth. And during the summers, either my dad or my grandfather would take me off on weekends to all of the local rodeos. And it was, I have to admit to it being somewhat spoiled because everybody was one of the only kids that was around there and I was a little spoiled and probably didn't like seeing me come around some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever tempted to uh, to follow rodeo? Did you ever did you ever try it yourself? <laughs> Interesting story. Uh, go back to Sherry Servey, her father Mel Potter and I went to high school and uh, when I met Mel, we played basketball against each other. One day he asked me if I was related to Tommy Rhodes because he he knew of him through his rodeoing. And Mel invited me out to his place where he, he had his own arena set up and he and I used to rope out there periodically. Well, my father never knew I had been doing that because I'd never told him. I was, of course, I roped all the time around the ranch when, for part of our job. So Mel one day said, well, how about we go, uh, let's go down to Wilcox and enter the rodeo down there. So I said, okay. So we went down there. I didn't have a horse and I didn't want to use my dad's because I didn't want him to know I was there. So there used to be a feed store out on Fort Lowell called OK Post Feeds and it was run by a gentleman named Bum Post. Well, he, he was a good <laughs> friend of the family. And so when we got to Wilcox, I met him and I said, I'd like to borrow your horse to rope on he said, sure, that's no problem. So I roped on it, and uh, we didn't do well. Mel caught the head, and I missed the heels, and that was the end of my roping career because <laughs> I went back to the ranch, and then later in the summer we came down to get some hay, and uh, when we came down to get it, Bum said, uh, say, Butch, he said, uh, sorry you didn't do so well at the rodeo, and I got this look from my father, and on the way home he said, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> and I, I explained it to him and he said look he said I've taught you enough to be a $40 a month cowboy but you're not a cattleman yet when you're a, when you're a cattleman then you come talk to me about being in the rodeo so that was my rodeo experience David we've talked about ranch history before and the connection with the rodeo that's important to Tucson tell us a little something that you've learned in your time about how the rodeo helped to build this city if you go back a few hundred years uh, to the early Spanish settlers and later Mexican settlers and, and American settlers, you see a large amount of them were ranchers. Um, they ran cattle. They lived that cowboy lifestyle. So it's it's a very deep-rooted history of Tucson. You know, and as the years passed, you know, we come up to 1925, and Leighton Kramer, uh, who was an eastern a visitor who would just visit Tucson and others like uh, John Rhodes here's family helped found the rodeo. The rodeo was to a certain degree a, a celebration brought forth as ranching kind of was fading out. We still have ranching today, but not to a degree we used to have ranching here in Tucson in southern Arizona. Yeah. But rodeo, I think, is a celebration of that lifestyle that was a very common lifestyle. Being a cowboy in Tucson and Southern Arizona was a very popular job at one point. Back in 2020, which seems like a long time ago now already. Yes, it does. Your father and your grandfather were honored over in Oklahoma. Uh, you went there for the ceremony, I understand. Yes. So tell us a little something about visiting the Rodeo Hall of Fame. 
Well, I got started on writing their nomination for the rodeo when I discovered it in my grandmother's old trunk, which I'd had for many years, scrapbooks and things with all kinds of newspaper clippings in it. And I always knew they were good because I knew as a kid growing up that uh, they always came home with money in their pocket. But nobody ever mentioned the fact that they were both four-time world champions and that they had uh, roped in three different events. So I started talking to people. I talked to um, Mel Potter, and he's the one that told me to put them in together as, as instead of just singularly because they were, in fact, a team. And uh, I talked to Gary Williams out at the Tucson Rodeo, and he gave me all the access to all the rodeo things there so that I could look for them because I had no idea that I hadn't that 20 years in the Marine Corps I didn't follow rodeo because by then they'd both retired. So the whole problem that I was faced with was the fact that they had name recognition because they had retired in the in the 40s and 50s and people that are voting for uh, entry into the Rodeo Hall of Fame was the Rodeo Historical Society members Unless they were true historians, they might have read about them. But other than that, nobody knew their names. So I wrote a very long, put a very big book together for them. And then it goes to the first stage, which they narrow it down to 12 living members and four deceased members. And being a pair, they were put in together. The first year, in 19, they didn't do it. But I got a call later that year, and I went to the ceremony for the people in 19 so that I could see what they were doing and so that I could maybe make contact with some people and talk to some people and maybe spread their name out a little bit. Okay. And uh, was not real successful at it because they're pretty clicky and they were always talking to each other. They didn't have any use for me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> no, that's pretty typical of cowboys. They're pretty yeah. But this lady, Gail Warner, called and she's a, a historian for the history system. And she says, well, you know, I read your book, and I didn't think that they did a very good job presenting your case. Would you mind if I rewrote it for next year? Oh. And, of course, I said, well, please, I'll be glad to, yeah. anything we can do. Now, is she based in Arizona or Oklahoma? Oh, she's in Oklahoma. Okay. But she lives there. She has not no connection with the Rodeo Hall of Fame, but she is okay. a member of the Historical Society. I see. So she rewrote it and did a much better job of presenting the case, and then, so they and they were voted in the next year. Then we went to the ceremony where they presented us with their the medals that they that they received, and uh, it was very interesting. It was a lot of fun. I met a lot of people, and it turned out to be very worthwhile. Obviously, when you were at that induction ceremony for your father and grandfather, did you feel it? Did your heart swell? Oh yeah, because I'm up I'm on the stage with these other eight people and they've all were world champions and all well-known names in in today's rodeo society and uh, it's kind of I guess like a go to a baseball all-star and sit, sit next to Babe Ruth and <laughs> or people like that and so it's uh, yeah I felt it and my whole family was able to go there so it, that made it nice too that they were able well, my children and were able to see it yeah something you could share well, I'll just end this by saying thank you very much for your service. Thank you. Thank you, John. And David, keep up the research. Thank you. Recounting some of his family's interesting history, we just heard from Tucson and John Rhodes, a Marine Corps veteran. He was joined by David Layton, who writes the Street Smarts column for the Arizona Daily Star.
You can let us know if you'd like to hear more stories about rodeo and Tucson's ranching past. You can share your opinions on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. During the global pandemic, many national parks in the U.S. have been seeing record-breaking visitation numbers, and this has exacerbated the need for additional staff and resources to make these places readily available to visitors. Since the 1930s, a key component of this effort has been a nonprofit organization that's been working to help dozens of national parks, monuments, and historic sites in our region to thrive. The Tucson-based Western National Parks Association recently hired Marie Buck as its new chief executive officer. Now, Tony Paniagua has this interview with Buck about the WNPA, its mission, and her goals as its new leader. Marie Buck, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was reading about you, and you worked for the Grand Canyon Conservancy and the Phoenix Raceway, also known as NASCAR, What led you to apply for this position at the Western National Parks Association? Well, this position just seemed like a natural extension of the work that I had already done with Grand Canyon Conservancy. I love the outdoors. I love the experience that the outdoor provides to, you know, all of our visitors across the United States and the opportunity to impact over 70 partner parks, monuments, and historic sites. was just too wonderful of an opportunity to pass up. Western National Parks Association is a really highly respected organization nationally doing so much to support our parks. And I just wanted to join the team and get on board. And what are some of the major projects or programs that the Western National Parks Association has? So we really look at our projects kind of in four buckets. So the first is retail with a purpose. So when you visit a national park or monument or historical site and you see the little retail store that's part of the visitor center or close by, all of those products are created with an interpretive and educational scope in mind. So the idea is that you take your park experience home with you. If you buy a book, you know, or you buy some type of memento that, you know, really represents your visit, you'll always remember your park visit and hopefully create, you know, a lifelong supporter. We also support NPS educational services, so providing educational programs to our visitors, whether on-site or digitally, which a lot of that happened in 2020. You know, with the COVID pandemic, we certainly had to pivot and adapt. Um, Research, we provide funding for the Park Services research projects, and then publishing. So we publish books uh, that we sell, you know, in our stores and other locations. So four really big buckets. And why have a WNPA doing this? Why not the National Park Service itself? The National Park Service doesn't really have the mechanism to do this themselves. So cooperating associations exist to kind of fill that gap for the Park Service. And one of the great things that we were able to do and other cooperating associations during COVID was one, the Park Service was technically kind of shut down in terms of their visitor interpretive services. Our retail stores were open and our staff were answering questions, helping direct the visitors, you know, to the right experience or the right place to go, you know, along with providing them with those products. 
So you are providing economic uh, support as well to the National Park Service? We are. Since we were founded in 1938, we've provided over $120 million in aid to our partner parks. And even in 2020, that number was $6.7 million. So it's a significant impact and support to the park system. Do you think there was a misconception out there by the public that because it's a national organization, the National Park Service, not WNPA, that they're getting all the funding that they need from Congress and the uh, administrations, whoever happens to be in the White House? Absolutely. I think there's a, a misperception, you know, that the parks are adequately funded. Um, you know, they struggle for funding just like any other federal agency, and they have to prioritize, you know, where they can spend their dollars. So I think absolutely you're spot on. Why are you a big fan of the outdoors and the National Park Service? Well, I mean, since I was a kid, right, my mom and dad, we'd go to national parks, we'd camp, we'd fish, we'd hike, we'd backpack. I just love the outdoors, and I love that connection that it takes you away from kind of like the realities of your everyday, whether it's school or work, you know, you're just getting back to the basics and connecting with the landscape that has been around for millions and millions of years. Um, It's just a spiritual and very emotional connection for me. And how important is that that connection, that spirituality is instilled in others, uh, younger generations? Uh, We have heard so much about the disconnect between many young people and the outdoors. I think it's extremely important. I think nature and landscape can provide a source of comfort, community, and spiritualness, you know, to our youth and to everybody. I think we do need to be creative and figure out how to bring that experience to youth or other folks that don't have access through a different platform. You know, maybe it's not always on-site visits. Maybe it's a virtual or a digital visit. But I think getting uh, someone to a park, allowing them to have that connection and experience, that's just a great step. It's really, very rarely do you hear someone tell you they had a terrible time visiting a national park. Moving forward, Marie Buck, what are your goals? What's your biggest mission in so far as your organization and the national parks? We really want to continue to grow and be a strong, relevant partner to the Park Service on a national footprint. You know, we want to help the Park Service impact those visitors, tell those untold stories of America's history, and really reach out to audiences that have been underserved in the past. So how do we stay strong as an organization? You know, how do we grow uh, so we can have that capacity to to serve those needs as, as the community changes? And what about our listeners? If somebody is listening, what would you say to him or her? How can you get involved and help not only the National Park Service, but Western National Parks Association? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Thank you. So first of all, you can visit our website at WNPA.org. There are so many ways to get involved. Visit one of our 71 partner parks monuments and historic sites. Check out our retail stores. Check out the interpretive services that are there. Uh, You can go online. You can become a park protector. Uh, It's a very small investment. Then you get our digital newsletters. You get discounts. You get access to special projects. And all of your funds are supporting what we do out there in the field. Uh, You can volunteer for us. You can volunteer for the parks. There's just a multitude of ways for folks to get involved. And I would really say the first step, again, check us out online, see what interests you. 
you know, and then reach out. We'd love to help anyone get involved with us. Marie Buck, the new CEO of the Western National Parks Association with its headquarters right here in Tucson, Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope to see you at one of our parks. In her short story collection, Once Into the Night, Ara Lee Sheehan revisits a form she's explored before, the very short short story. The 57 stories the book contains range in length from two sentences to three pages. Most are written in first-person perspective. Sheehan is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona and a receiver of the Catherine Doctorow Innovative Fiction Prize. This is called The Suit. I wore a particular 50s-style suit for almost a year when I was in graduate school. I realized what was going on one afternoon when I was standing in the English department's mailroom. I was a graduate assistant at the time. A man who had the name of another man was in the room with me, getting his mail. Soon he would die. He was loved and appreciated at that school, though he worked for limited and unfair pay, the adjunct scale. I chose to wear the suit because there was a scale, and on one side was success and allure and effect, and on the other side was rumpledness and sorrow and suicide. The suit I wore was my mother's wedding suit. She wore a suit rather than a white dress that singular day. The wedding took place on the Army base in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was in her belly already, a firmament of my own behind the still flat skirt panel, behind the small bouquet. She also wore a hat. Her mother was there at the wedding, and her mother was also wearing a suit and a hat. The suit I wore for so many days in a row was comprised of a slim skirt and a short boxy jacket with half sleeves and one large mother-of-pearl button at the neck. The important thing about the suit is that it clung and held, trimming you up and making sure you were all in one place, headed in the right direction. You couldn't actually move your arms that much. You couldn't reach too far for things. And of course, you couldn't walk forward with great strides either, but needed to almost shuffle forward. High heels were best, obviously, or little Chinese slippers, created a nice sound with the shuffling. Hard to find the right blouse to go underneath, not too billowy, or the exact right hairstyle, something contrasting but also coiffed. But if you got those things right, you could pretty much remain in neutral and feel satisfied. In those days, I also slept in the suit, in a coffin. Actually, it wasn't a coffin, but a single bed with a thin mattress and very high sides, so I did have to stumble in, straining the suit as I flipped myself into the horizontal resting place. I held my arms to my body. I didn't wear shoes, but kept my shoes, pumps or flats, on the floor at the foot of the bed. Sleep wasn't always as restful as it could have been. Aurelie Sheehan read that story from her collection Once Into the Night, published by FC2 and the University of Alabama Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. 
Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.